Hello and welcome to the words we use. Have you ever struggled with finding the right words to give meaning, depth, and clarity to your message? We have, and that's exactly what we're going to examine. Come along with us as we expand our communication knowledge. PWWU team, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Pat. Hi, I'm Sue. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Carissa. Hi, I'm Bill. Hi, I'm Lisa. Hi, I'm Gary. And, and we, we are, are the Words Our guest today is Mark A. Skipper. He is the owner of MAS Office Cleaners and recently started Speak Better Than Your CEO, a public speaking and coaching firm. Before the cleaning and public speaking business, Mark was a 25-year professional fundraiser for the Boy Scouts of America and Dunwoody College of Technology. Mark is a board member of the Northern Star Scouting Council, a seven-year member of Business Network International, active at Creative Church in Maple Grove, and a member of Toastmasters International. Toastmasters helps individuals develop their leadership, communication, and speaking skills. Mark competes in competitions and won the 2017 Toastmasters District 6 Speech Championship. For nearly half his life, Mark was too petrified to stand and speak in front of people. He overcame that fear and wants to help others conquer their fear of public speaking. Mark believes you can do it and become a confident speaker. In fact, you can learn to speak better than your CEO. Mark writes monthly articles for the Osseo Maple Grove Press and News about tips to become a better speaker. He is working on his first book, an accumulation of those tips called Speak Better Than Your CEO. Mark is the father of two adult children and resides in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited about being here. So it says that you were petrified to speak in front of people. How did you go from being petrified to even stand up in front of people to winning contests? <laughs> well, probably like so, so many people, I was just afraid of speaking in front of people. I think they, they say that's like one of the top fears. They've said that it's the number one fear that most people would prefer to die before they stand up and, and speak probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but not too far away from that. I can remember being in seventh grade and I'm sitting in my English class in Wilbur Park Middle School in Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting there and I am sweating like a pig. And that's because it was my turn to stand up and speak in about three, three minutes. Okay. And I'm just, just sweating and sweating. The person before me, the teacher said her name, she sat down and then it was my turn and the bell rang. So I was actually saved from, from doing that. So that was a pretty common occurrence in my life through high school and even through, through college. I got through where I was in my last year of, of college and I said to myself, you know, you, you have to overcome this 
this problem that you have if you're going to be successful in your career. Well, when I got my very first job, my first job was with the Boy Scouts of, of America. I'm still nervous about, very nervous about standing up and speaking in front of people. Would you know my responsibility was to stand up on a weekly basis and sell to parents why their kids should consider being in Cub Scouts and, and Boy Scouts. Well, one of the things that I found, found out, as each of you probably already know, the more you do something, the easier it gets and the fear begins to subside. So that played a, a real big role in me over, overcoming my fear because I didn't have a choice. If I was going to keep my job, be able to eat every day, pay my bills, I had to figure out how, how to do it. And that's what happened. What is your goal when you're telling people you can speak better than a CEO? What are they looking for, these people who come to you? Well, a lot of people that come to me, they aren't petrified like, like I was to speaking, mm -hmm. but they want to become better speakers. And what I found out with, with a lot of people, and especially if they're not in Toastmasters, they don't know a lot of the, just the little bitty things that to Toastmasters seem like little bitty things, but are really big things that can significantly change how they speak. Speaking with them about one, not being afraid of silence. It seems that we are afraid to stand up in front of people and have a point when, we, when words are not coming out of our, our mouth, when actually it's much better to have silence to do things like emphasize important, important points, to give you an opportunity to think about what's the next thing you're, you're going to say. Because it's much better than saying, um, because uh, too many of those, and it totally distracts your audience from what you're trying to, to say. So one of the things that I do on a weekly basis is I post a speak better than your CEO tip on LinkedIn. And now I'm up to tip number 40, 41. So I have a lot of people now that are following the, the tips that are responding back and they're sharing that those are the kinds of things that has been very helpful for them in their jobs. So how to use a pause. Right now with Zoom being so common because of the, the pandemic of making sure you're looking into that little dot that's on your computer so that you get into eye contact. That has helped, helped a lot of people. My very last one was about, you have a lot to say, you have notes. How can you make sure you're hitting all the points you need to make and still maintain your eye contact? One of the mistakes that a, a lot of people make is they have their notes off to the side. So they're kind of glancing at their notes, losing eye contact with the audience on, on Zoom. So I share with you, just take your notes and take your notes directly under the camera on your computer. And the notes are in front of you. And it appears to everyone else that you're giving them the eye contact that, that they deserve. So sharing those types of just tips that once again, a lot of Toastmasters will know, but those that aren't in it have no idea that these are the little things that would make them become better speakers. Uh, Lisa has a question. Hi, Lisa. 
Hello, Mark. I'm curious, what tips or tricks would you have for perhaps adults that are just getting into speaking that maybe still have that childhood voice in their head that children should be seen and not heard? And if you have something to say, just say it and don't spit and sputter unless it's an important message. What would you say to those folks that say, you know what, as much as I want to speak, that little voice is still rumulating in my head. Any tricks to get that out or make it go away? Sure, sure. I think it's important that we find safe places to practice when we speak. And one of the safest places I've found is a good Toastmasters club where you can come in and when you feel comfortable, you can start to speak. There are opportunities to take little small speaking opportunities that over time will make you become a little more comfortable, a little bit more comfortable till you're ready to stand up and give a five minute speech or a seven minute minute speech. So one of my, the first things that I always recommend to people is to find a good Toastmasters club in, in the area. Cause as you know, they're all over the, the globe. So they're all over the state of Minnesota of where they can connect in that space where they can watch other people. They can see other people that are just like them that are nervous about speaking. There's some people in there that are pretty good speakers. So it doesn't matter where you are, you can find someone like you in, in a Toastmasters club. So if the first thing once again would be find a club where it's an inviting group where you can speak when you're ready kind of ease into speaking longer and longer and longer. Mark. Hi, Sue. Hi. Hi. I have a question about um, what isn't Toastmasters competing with what you're looking at as far as helping speakers? Thank you. No, I think that, that's a great question because initially that's what I was saying to myself as well. But I find that Toastmasters is an easy way for them to ease in and get information. But a lot of people want in a sh short period of time to significantly improve their, their speaking. And as you know, in Toastmasters, while you may have an opportunity to do very small speaking opportunities, you, you don't have always on a weekly basis the opportunity to stand up and speak for five, 10, 15 minutes and then have someone evaluating you in a very intense type of, of a way. So one of the things that I do that adds on to being in a Toastmasters is I'll have the person to give their presentation that they typically do on their job and I will videotape it. We will sit down together and I'll start off and ask them, why don't you share with me what you thought about your presentation? And one of the things that I found out is that in most cases, they will identify every single thing that I also identify that they could improve on. By having them identify that first, it makes it easier when I come in and say, here's some of the things that I saw and here's what I'm recommending to improve that particular, particular area. So once again, Toastmasters, I see as being more long-term, whereas what I can do for a person is very quick, short-term. There may be a presentation that's coming up three months from now, 
that they need some help in improving their speaking. So that's the difference that I see between between the two. And I don't look at it as being um, competitive to what I'm trying to trying to do. In your coaching, do you do both groups and individuals or do you just focus on helping individuals one at a time? Yeah, most of what I've done so far, so far has been on an individual basis. But what I do can be used in, let's say, a business setting. You have a department in, in your company. You want your team to be, just become better pre- presenters. I have a, a layout or a program to help them to, to do that in a short period, period of time. Hi, Mark. Hi, Pat. How are you doing? Great, great. Uh, I, I saw your bio and I'm also, I wasn't Boy Scouts. I was a, one of the first female assistant scoutmasters in the metro area. Oh, excellent. So, excellent. Yeah, and I was a commissioner as well. But that was years ago. But my, my question is, I, I see in your bio, you had a stroke. And how do you overcome something like that? And you know, also thinking about Joe Biden, who is a stutterer. Um, so what, what difficulties did you have overcoming your stroke and did that affect your speaking? Oh, uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I had my stroke on February the 6th. The day before that, I had just given a speech at an organization called AGC. There were about 200, 250 people that, that were there. That very next night, just barely 24 hours later, I was working in my, my cleaning business. And it felt like my shoe was dragging. So I looked down, my shoes were untied, so I tied, tied them up. Then within a matter of a few minutes, I noticed that my right arm was losing control. So for instance, if you were to try to touch your nose right now with your finger, you probably wouldn't have any problem doing that. If I had tried it at that time, my finger would have moved to the right and maybe touched my ear or to the left, but I would have had a hard time of just being able to touch the tip of my nose. I'm diabetic. So I thought I my sugar was just going low. I checked it, it was. I ate something. And then I started thinking to myself, wait a minute. Everything that I was having a problem with, my leg, my arm, was all happening on the left side of my body. And I had heard that that tends to be a sign that you may be having a stroke. So I just looked looked it up online real quick and that's pretty much what it said. So I just jumped in my car and drove myself (laughs) to the hospital. I, I, I was fortunate because like you said, everything was happening on the left side. So of course I could drive with my right foot and turn the, the steering wheel. It probably wasn't the smartest thing to do, but that's what that's what I did. And they looked at me, they did some tests, and the doctor came back and told me, Yeah, you had you had a stroke. And I was blessed because it happened on the right side of my brain. And typically, whatever side of your brain that you have your stroke. It impacts the other side of your body. So as opposed to losing control as far as my speaking or my eyesight or my mental capacity, 
the only thing it impacted was my left arm and my left leg. So since that time, I'm able to walk without a walker. I use a cane every now and then, depending on how far that I, that I have to walk. But I'm still working on reconnecting a spot in my brain to tell the muscles in my left leg that when you walk, you need to pull up your foot and land on your heel. I don't know about you, but before I had my stroke, I never thought about the mechanics of walking. I'd wake up in the morning, I just get out the bed and my legs would start moving towards wherever I need needed to go. I would assume none of you probably think about the mechanics of walking either. But now I have to think about that. I have to think about placing my heel on the ground. I have to think about lifting my toes up in the air. Because when I don't, if I start thinking about something else, I could lose my balance and end up on the ground, which of course, I don't want to add to the problems I have by, by falling, falling again. So it didn't impact my speaking at, at all. I think about other people that have had strokes. In fact, so I was in the hospital and rehab for just under one month. I'm coming out of rehab and I hadn't even been in the hospital for a week. So they're rolling me out. And I see this woman coming towards me in a wheelchair. And I think she looks a little familiar, but I can't place her. So as we're both being rolled in our wheelchairs, we get side by side. She looks at me and says, Skipper. <laughs> and then I realized, okay, I do know her. Well, all of her hair had been cut off. She had a hat on and part of her skull had been removed. Oh well, it turns out that she also had had a stroke just like I had. But her stroke she had had in December. So she had been in the hospital for well over a month before I got there. Her stroke was also on the right side of her brain. She had her stroke at nighttime while she was asleep. She fell out, hit her head, which caused him to have to remove part of her skull for her brain to expand. So like me, she had challenges with her left arm, her left leg and walking. So when I think about the hill that she has to climb is much steeper than the hill that I, I have to climb. I look at it and, and say, I have no reason to feel sorry for, for myself. Cause while there are some people have physical disabilities for the rest of their lives because of strokes. Some people have not lived through, through their, their stroke. That I, I really was very, very blessed and, and lucky that is not worse than what it is. It seems that I'm not gonna have any permanent damage from, from having a stroke. And for those that may not know what really what a stroke is. A stroke is just like having a heart attack, except for it happens in your brain. 
the blood and oxygen doesn't get to a certain place in your brain and that area dies in, in your brain. And that spot will control different parts of, of your, your body. And once again, for me, the part that died was the part that controlled telling my arm and leg to move and to do certain, certain things. So what's happening now over time is I'm having to find a different spot in my brain to take over where this location that died and controlling that, that part, of, part of my body. So it has impacted me because I have been in the contest, a couple of contests since having my stroke. And one of the things that I like to do when I speak in, on stage is I like to move around. And because of my balance, not being very, very good, I had to sit um, in a chair and give my speech. And it just really takes a lot of energy and enthusiasm away from when you speak, when you're sitting down in, in, in a chair. So it has impacted me that way. It hasn't impacted my mouth, but it has impacted the body, which exudes a lot of energy when you when you move around. One, one of the things that I, I did learn, and, and I think that this is important for all of us to know, there's an acronym that they use that's called FAST. And it's to identify when you or someone else is having a stroke. Because time is of the essence when you have a stroke. They say the first four hours are really critical to lowering the level of damage that could be done. So the first thing that they say fast is your face. So if your face is drooping or you see someone and their face is, is drooping, they may be having a stroke. Their arm, if, if an arm begins to get weak, losing control of the arm, that could be a sign. The S could be slurring of, of the voice. If you've ever been speaking with someone, then all of a sudden their speaking just starts getting to slur, that means that they could be having a stroke. And if any of those things happen, the T is time to call 911. Because as I said, the, the first four hours are really critical as far as the type of medications that can be given to break down wherever the clot is happening within, within your brain. So that's going to be also one of the, the topics that I will start including in some of my speeches. Um, one of the things I want to do is go and speak at hospitals speak to families of those that have had had strokes just to encourage and inspire that you can have a stroke and still beat it as well as making sure that you're able to identify it in yourself and, and others. So that probably was a lot more than what you, <laughs> what you asked me, but um, that's some of the things that I've learned through having this stroke and it has definitely impacted me, but not as much as it possibly could have. You're very lucky. I am. I am very lucky on that. If it had affected your speech, it would be hard to talk or make yourself understood. So you're very lucky. Yeah. 
Yes. And, and I live by, by myself. So if, if I had had unable to speak or had more damage where I could not walk, I mean, that really puts me in a, in an awkward position. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have family or immediate family that lives here in, in Minnesota. So I, I was, I was very blessed that it did not really stop me from being able to take care of myself and do, do things. One of the fun things though, from having a stroke, and I know this might sound weird. I remember always seeing those little carts at the grocery store that look like a little car. I was pretty excited about having the opportunity to sit in one of those and drive around because before I felt like if I sat, everybody'd be looking at me thinking, "Why is this grown man playing in one of, one of these cars?" So now, whenever I go to Cup Food, you may walk in and see me driving around in one of those cars. Home Depot has them too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll have to go there because every now and then I have to go into Menards. Maybe I start going to Home Depot. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I like about Toastmasters is that it teaches us to where it helps us learn how to communicate with just about everybody. When I was in sales, I was in sales for 17 years selling retirement plans. I discovered during my 17 years of selling retirement plans that people are, some people are drivers, you approach them differently. Some people are expressives, you, you approach them differently. Okay, so what I've learned is overall, there are different ways of speaking with different people. So my question to you is, Mark, is it, is, it, is there a difference in talking with people of color than people who are not, who are, who are with other people? So your question is, is there a difference in talking, speaking to people of color or? Yes, versus uh, other people, uh, white people. I think that's a, that's a good question. I really think that when you speak to people, you have to try to speak to people as individuals, as opposed to speaking to people as, as a group. Because we all have different ways that we listen. We all have different ways that we learn. So it's real important to try to learn a little bit about the person that you're speaking with, if you can, before you have, have the conversation. And I, I would assume with you being in sales, if you knew you had to meet with somebody, you would try to find a little bit about the background, right? Always. What kinds of things are important to to them? And I would say if you're in that situation where you can do that, I would suggest it doesn't matter what their racial background is, what their religious background is, to try to learn a little bit about them to decide what's the best way to communicate with them. I think for the most part, probably the biggest difference with people is more of of really class more so than racial. If you and I both, I went to Ohio State. If we both went went to college, chances are we had some very similar experiences, which means that it would make it a little easier for, for us to communicate. If you went to college and I didn't, it might make it a little difference, difference in, in our communication because the experience is, is different. But that's still not the same in every situation. I always recommend to people, start communicating, talking to people. Don't make prejudgments if you haven't had an opportunity to learn a little bit about about their background. We're fortunate from the standpoint today, we live in 
a society where we can really find out a lot of information about people because of the internet. LinkedIn, you pull up a person on LinkedIn, it'll tell you what their career background is, where they went to school, make it a little easier to figure out the kinds of things you might be able to talk about initially to make that person feel comfortable as you begin to, to have your conversation. Facebook or just Googling a person's name. I don't know if you all have just got on the computer, pop your name in to see what it pull, pulls up. Sometimes it can be a little scary. I mean, all the information about you that's out there in this public forum that you just had no idea that was out there. If you've done any videos, for instance, these types of podcasts, put your name in, chances are that'll pop, that'll pop up. So we really have an opportunity to learn a lot about people before we have conversations with them through the internet. That's, that's good advice. I've always tried to do that as best I could uh, when making a, a sales call. I, I do have a follow-up question though, and it has nothing to do with my previous question. Do you like, do you do cold calls? Actually, I do not, which is one of the reasons when I, when I started, and I'm going to talk about my cleaning business now. So when I started my cleaning business, I joined an organization, which is called Business Network International or yeah. BNI. And this organization is built around def developing relationships with other business people so that we can refer business to one, one another. And everything that I have read has said the, the best way to, or most effective way to build a business, when people refer you. If you think about, you're looking for a company, you go on the internet right now, you look to see how many stars are by that particular company you're interested in, right? Where you're doing that because you're wanting to find out what other people think about that in order to make your decision. Now think about if your friend makes a recommendation or a family member makes a recommendation. Just think about how much that a difference that makes in you making your decision on whether or not you're going to do business with that person. So that's what this organization organization does. We get to know one another. We get to know about each other's businesses. We get to hear about the, the level of work, the quality of the work. And then we feel more comfortable in referring people we know, our relatives, people we do business with, our friends to do business with this other person that's part, part of the group. I have not done, done cold calling because of that organization. I believe if I had not found this organization and I had to do cold calling, I'm not so sure I'd still be in business. <laughs> I'll probably be working for somebody else right, right now. Do you still cold calling? Yeah, I loved cold calls. I absolutely, okay. I ate it up. I just loved it. And I'll tell you why. We got most of our business, like 99% of our business from in, uh, investment professionals. And so when I make a cold call to an investment professional, I viewed it as an opportunity for me to tell this person about my company and how we can make them look good by giving us business. We manage their client's retirement account. We don't do their, their investments, they do that, but we'll manage the legal and the accounting for that plan and make them shine, make them look good. 
And it was really a lot of fun for me to call an investment professional and tell them, hey, man, this is what I can do for you to make you look good. And all I have to do is do my job. I think that's a great mindset. And, And I think having the kind of mindset that you have of this is what I can do that's going to benefit you. That if we have that mindset pretty much on everything that we do is look at it from the standpoint of what can I do that's going to help you? That's going to help you, one, to be very successful. And that's going to cause that prospective person to really pay more attention because you're now coming from the standpoint of what's best for them as opposed to what's best for Bill, who's trying to sell me a a service. Yeah. Yeah. The focus was the client. Service your client and make you look good at the same time. Exactly. And, And that's a lot of what I've learned from being a part of this BNI organization is really of how can I help this other person to be successful? And that when you really focus on helping other people, what happens is that it boomerangs back to you. You know, they, they say you help somebody else, it comes back to you seven, sevenfold. And I have found that to be true of when you focus on helping other people, it comes back to you. Hey, Gary. Hi, Mark. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing super fantastic. I've been in Toastmasters for 10 years, and I got involved because I had that fear of public speaking that you were talking about earlier. Now, one thing that's nice about Toastmasters is that you get an evaluation right away, and a lot of times people will tell me, you look relaxed and comfortable up there. And I've realized, boy, do I have them fooled. (laughs) I don't care how much experience I have. I think I'm always going to get nervous, even right now. So that's why I look for opportunities. But you claim that you've gotten over that fear of public speaking. And I imagine that a stroke might have helped there because by comparison, it doesn't really compare. <laughs> but are you sure you're totally over that fear or is there still some oh trepidation when you have to get up in front of people? And I got a follow up to that. No, that, that's a great question. You know, I've, I've read and people that speak in front of thousands and thousands of people have said when they get up to speak, there's that little feeling of the butterflies flying around in the stomach. But once they get on stage, within a matter of a few moments, they open their mouth, then they start to kind of relax and calm, calm down. So I'm, I'm no different when each time that I've gotten up to compete, I was a little nervous when I got up there. But once I started to speak, I just relaxed and began to flow as I was on stage. So I believe being a little nervous is common. We're not going to overcome that. But you're not going to be so afraid as I was where you're sweating and you're nervous and you feel like you're about to faint when it's your time to speak. So you, you can overcome that kind of feeling, but you're probably going to always have a little nervous and nervousness. And they say that's actually good because if you're too calm, you're not going to have the same level of energy when you, when you get up to speak. Well, I've noticed uh, lately I've gotten so <laughs> comfortable that I've been running long on a lot of the times that I'm supposed to be restrained to. 
like uh, table topics at two minutes and evaluations at three minutes. And it's going longer than I th thought it was. But have you ever run into that where you, you help somebody and you found out you've kind of created a monster because now they won't shut up? <laughs> well, I, I'm not I'm not sure if I found necessarily that that yet. But one of the ways I, I believe to be able to deal with like staying on time and Toastmasters definitely teaches you that you have a little limited time to speak, which is no different when you go to your job. We have a limited amount of time to make a present presentation. Is being able to understand that one, you need to figure out what is your opening so that you have that opening prepared and you're, you're ready to give that opening. Because the open is always important because people will decide whether or not they want to listen to you the rest of your presentation. So that opening is key. You gotta have something that's gonna grab them. You gotta have that question or you make that, share that stat that you're gonna catch their uh, attention at, at the beginning. And then you have to know how you want to close your presentation. What are you going to say? What is it that you want to challenge people? What is it you want them to walk away from your presentation remembering? So knowing how much time you have, in Toastmasters, of course, we have green, yellow, red colors that come up, or you, you have a clock that's sitting next to you so that if you're getting close to running out of time, you can transition into that closing and say those key points you wanna say in that closing that people can walk away and remember. Yeah, I guess another way of putting it is <clears throat> you help people learn how to be succinct, to say what they have to say. And like I said, I have a hard time figuring out a way to close out, to finish my question, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, that's definitely the part to know exactly how you want to close it, have practiced it. Because right. you can kind of make that body part of your presentation tighter and go right into that closing if you're you're running out of time. You know, as you said, Gary, being succinct is more important than talking a long time and just saying a lot of words. If you can narrow it down and say something in five minutes as opposed to seven minutes, that five minutes is gonna be more powerful because you are more to the point and you're using the most important words to say what you need to say. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Mark, you went from being an employee who spoke for the Cub Scouts to an entrepreneur. How did speaking help you make that transition? Well, one of the things I, I can say, because I was so afraid of standing up and making presentations and, and speaking in front of people, to being able to conquer or control that fear, to take it to the next level of where I found that I really enjoyed speaking to people once I got beyond the, the fear is that it gave me more confidence. It gave me more confidence that, hey, I can do this. I could do things that had nothing to do with giving presentations because I had conquered something that was such a big roadblock for me. I was able to now do it. I started to say, well, maybe I can do this or maybe I, I can do that. 
So that made me more confident that I could go out away from, to some degree, the safe thing I was doing, which was working for somebody else, letting them make all the final de decisions to being that now that I'm that person that's able to, to do that. I was able to overcome speaking. I believe that I can overcome the fear of jumping out there and doing it on my own. So I, I would say that's probably the biggest thing about overcoming the, the fear. And once again, I would bet most of us at some point in our lives were afraid to speak in front of people, make presentations. That just, just opens the door to be able to do so many other things. One of the other things is that you are writing a book. Could you tell us about that? Yes. So as I shared, one of the things that I've been doing, and it's been almost a year now, is that on a weekly basis, I will put a speaking tip out on LinkedIn. I did a lot of speaking when I when I was in, or I still am in, BNI. I will go to other groups and I would give them advice on how to network. And that's what that organization teaches you do, to do is network. And one of the things that I've found is that when I gave my presentations, it caused me to have to be more creative in how I made my presentations and that people were reacting to that. So taking the tips that I was putting on LinkedIn taking the responses that I was getting from making these presentations through BNI, I wanna take all of that together and put into a little handbook, a speaking handbook that a person can pull out. They can flip through and say, you know, I'm having problems with, I'm just using too many filler words when I speak. They can turn to this, that section and see what am I saying about filler words how to use a pause to stop as opposed to saying um and on. I want to see how do I use my eye contact better. They can flip to that, that section and see that I'm suggesting you start off, you look to the left, you make a point, then you look towards the center. You find somebody there and you grab eye contact with them. When you get to your next point, go to to the next section so those are the types of things that i want to have in what i envision a, a a little small book that you can put into your suit pocket or in your shirt shirt pocket and it's going to be titled speak better than your ceo and the, the reason or how i came up with with that i've always noticed that most ceos presidents of, of companies tend to be very good speakers they have practiced, they have learned how to become good communicators. So I'm making the assumption that a lot of people kind of will look at things the way that I have. Wow, I like to speak like that guy or that woman speaks. And that's how I kind of came up with that title. When I worked for the Boy Scouts, there was a guy that worked for us. He wasn't the CEO of that particular Boy Scout Council, but he was in a leadership role. And whenever Mike Soulgrove would get up to speak, he always had me sitting at the edge of my chair because when he spoke, he created pictures with his words. Mike wouldn't just say for lunch, I had an apple. Mike would say at lunchtime, I had this juicy red apple. 
he just knew how to add weight and to give his words, give his words structure. And that's one of the things that I always want to do. And Mike, in a way, was a mentor to me, even though he, he didn't know it. He was a mentor to helping me to really get into paying attention to the, the words that I use and how, how, how I use them. So Mike, as well as some of you may have heard of this guy called named Zig Ziglar, listening to how he would speak. He would give these funny names to common things, you know, as opposed to him just saying my wife, he called her the redhead. I really started really paying attention to how he was describing things when he would speak, which was the same thing I learned from Mike, Mike Solgrove. And yeah, Mark, um, just the opposite, instead of creating a monster, have you ever worked with somebody who's like a diamond in the rough and all you had to do was show them <laughs> what potential they had because I've seen a lot of people do exactly that but you just have to show them what they're capable of doing and all of a sudden they blossom yeah I, I would say most people I come across are diamonds in the rough most people they just don't realize if I just tweak this this and this I'll be a pretty good speaker and if I pay more attention to my filler words and somehow move those out, if I learn how to add more weight to the words that I use, of using more descriptive type words, that I would be a much better speaker. If I would learn how to use my body language to emphasize my key points, wow, I would be a much better speaker. So most people that I come in contact with it's really not that much that they need to do to change to tweak in order to become a much better, better speaker. You know, I almost feel like these are just so simple things that I'm suggesting that, that I'm saying, which they really are simple things, but these are things that most people are not incorporating in how they speak in their presentations. Simple, yes, but they're not incorporating it into how they present. You know, they always always say, in most cases, we, we know what to do. We just don't do it. <laughs> so it's not so much that it's complex. It's just it takes discipline to do some of the things that we should do. So do you think those guys you were just talking about had a Mark Skipper in their history? Uh, much better than a Mark. Oh, you said in their history? Somebody taught them how to be that good? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As I said, most people that I have come in contact with, with just a little bit of direction, a little bit of coaching, they can be fantastic speakers. Mark, I'm curious how you guide or coach your clients in speaking engagements where they don't have the lectern or the podium. I know when I was a senior in high school, I took a speech class and I always kept a paper clip in my pocket so I could pull it out when I got to the front and finally my teacher became wise to my tricks and she would always make sure that I emptied my pockets, Missy, before you get to the stage. So how do you encourage or guide your clients to just embrace that stage if they don't have that lectern as their kind of their security blanket? Sure. No, I think that's a good, that's a great question. Well, one of the first things, and I do this, especially when I can compete, is that I go to the place that I have to speak and I typically will go a day, a couple of days before 
And I go up and I walk around that stage so that I feel extremely comfortable with where I'm going to be speaking. And so I don't think it matters whether you're in a competition as, as I have been or whether you're at work. If you know you're going to be in auditorium B, go there earlier, walk around, get a feel of the stage, get a feel of the room so you know how loud you have, have to speak. Get comfortable with the, the microphones, so which means that you'll have to be there, of course, earlier than the group that's going to come in to listen to you present. Another thing that I will recommend to those that have to give presentations is the time before you actually speak is very important. I say getting out and mingling is extremely important. Just getting out, kind of think about politicians that go out and they're shaking hands and they're kissing babies. To some degree, I think if you have to stand up in front of a group and speak, that you should also do that. Because what happens is one, it makes you feel much more comfortable with the people that you're going to speak to. Because in a sense, it goes from speaking to a room of strangers to speaking to people that you now know because you've now had conversations, maybe not long conversations, but you've had some interaction with them. So not only do you feel more comfortable, now you have a room of people and let's say it could be people you don't know or even people you do know, you now have a room filled with people that want you to succeed because you've had some interaction with them. So now when you go up to speak, you might start off a little nervous, Gary, but you begin to relax because now you're speaking to people that, that you know. Even before you get to that part, Practice, 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 right? The better you know something, the more comfortable you are of getting up and speaking. You don't have to know everything word from word, but you know those key points that you want, you want to give. And you are now more comfortable because you know exactly what, you, what you're gonna talk about. Uh, Mark, how many, how many Toastmasters clubs do you belong to? Right. <laughs> Well, right, right now I belong to three, three clubs and one I, I just became a member of, and this is a brand new club and it focuses primarily on people that are going to be competing. So we have, it meets twice a month and we have workshops to help people to prepare to, to speak. Typically what I initially wanted was just to be in one, in one, one club. Never so happened <laughs> on that one one club. Um, the other two clubs that I that I'm in, the very first club that I joined when I got back into Toastmasters, it's called TikTokers. is located in Plymouth, uh, and typically when we're not at home on Zoom, we meet at City Hall in in Plymouth, and it has been the largest club for uh, at least for the last last three years. Uh, one year we had about 40, a little over 40 people that are in, in the club. All 40 didn't attend every week, of course. Yeah. On average, we had between 20 and 25 people that attend. Once again, it was a very engaging club that you felt very comfortable. Um, everyone seemed to be really ener energetic. And that's what really attracted me to that club because I had looked at about four, four or five different clubs to join. 
And when I went to that one, I knew this was the club that I wanted to be a part of. The second club that, that I'm in is called Northwest Metro, which meets every second and fourth Monday at six o'clock in Maple, Maple Grove. A different type of a club, much smaller than the first one that, that I joined, but it has a still has the feeling of it's safe for me to go in, practice, make a mistake. I don't have to feel like, oh, I'm a terrible person because I didn't do as well as I wanted to on on, on that that speech. But I, I think it's a very good, good club. One of the things that we all know is that we're all a little different. So some of us like the whole thought of being in a room with 20 or 30 people. Others feel more comfortable in a much more smaller, intimate group. And that's the way I see that second club. I know there are some people in Toastmasters that are in five clubs, six, 10 clubs. I don't know how you all, all do it, but I, I think a part of Toastmasters is not just the learning that you do, but it's also the relationships that you develop in, in Toastmasters. But I think that you'll find a lot of people that it really does become relationship-based. I have a lot of friends that are in, in Toastmasters. Mark, I'd like to thank you very much for joining the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the words we use. Own your voice and make your words matter. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review.